Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Andy Rowe Show. And today I'm speaking with Africa's version of the crocodile hunter. Ivan Carter is the leading wildlife conservationist and investigator in Africa and is famous for his documentary series called Carter's War, where he gets up close and personal with some of the planet's most dangerous animals. The footage from the documentary series is epic and you can check some of it out by searching The Andy Rowe Show on YouTube, Instagram or Facebook. In this episode, he's going to talk us through how to take on a charging elephant how giraffes are extinct in some parts of Africa. We're going to hear from Ivan on why big game hunting is so vital for the conservation of wildlife in Africa. And you're going to hear a horrifying story about the hunt for a man-eating crocodile. I hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me now is the leading wildlife conservationist and investigator in Africa, Ivan Carter. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you, mate? Hey, really, really good, Andy. Thank you so much for having me on the show. No worries. Thanks for coming on. Set the scene for me. Where are you? Right now, I'm actually in South Africa, in the northeastern part of South Africa, where um, we, we have a home here. It's fairly close to the Kruger National Park. And, you know, a hop, skip and a jump to almost anywhere in Africa, obviously, <laughs> without the restrictions of COVID travel. Um, you know, you can get anywhere these days. So, yeah, we, we're in the northern part of South Africa, middle of summertime right now, lots of rain, lots of green and, and pretty hot in between the rainstorms. So it's a beautiful place to be. So there's no lions or leopards or rhino or elephants roaming around on your back lawn at the moment. You're safe. You're, you're okay to sit down and have an interview with me. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that wasn't the case just a few days ago. I've just got out of the bush where, um, yeah, we, we, you know, one of the great things about Africa is there's still a lot of great areas. You know, the news tends to put a, a little bit of a, everybody likes bad news, but Really, there's lots and lots of ecosystems and, and areas that, you know, truly are very, very wild where you've got elephants walking through the through the camp and, and you know, lions roaring at night. So uh, I'm lucky enough to get to spend lots of time in those kind of places. So talk me through that we, we have been in the last week. Have there been animals just sort of roaming around where you've been living and where you've been staying and where you've been holidaying? Well, Andy, it's been a nice, busy last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we were um, traveling around some game reserves here in South Africa I was working with Giraffe Conservation Foundation, and um, we were taking some giraffes to a community-owned reserve in KwaZulu-Natal, um, which included catching them, loading them onto trucks, and, and actually moving them. And then we also did some, some satellite tagging, trying some brand new technology where we were putting tiny little tags in the ear of a giraffe, because a giraffe's got a weird-shaped body. So it's very hard to put a collar on it. You actually can't. Mm. It, we've tried head harnesses. We've tried all sorts of things. Um, what we're using now across Africa is a, a satellite unit that's about the size of a small cell phone and actually attaching that to an ossicone. And the technology is growing. The ossicone is the horn on the top of the head. Right. Um, it's not actually a horn because it doesn't have that, that kind of keratin, keratin around the bone. It's just the bone with skin. So, you know, giraffe are pretty unique. So they have an ossicone. And, um, and so those, those, 
transmitters are great on the on the ossicone or the horn on the top of their heads. Um, yeah, I bet you get good the, coverage because they're quite high. So you'd... it's like having your own cell phone tower wherever your unit is. It's got its own tower, you know. <laughs> you certainly live a very, very interesting life. One that's far removed from what I live in the in the middle of London. But is there a problem with giraffes that people don't know or see? Are they are they on the brink or the, of survival? Are they are they that badly endangered that you need to be putting in programs like this to to look after them? You know, that's a great question, Andy. We, we call it the silent extinction. Silent for a number of reasons. Silent because giraffes don't make many noises. They can make noises, they just don't. But also silent because they're almost a forgotten species. The tallest animal on earth is almost being forgotten. And, you know, people are shocked when you give them some statistics. You know, there's four elephants for every giraffe in Africa. And yet everybody focuses on elephant conservation. Um, giraffe have gone extinct in seven African countries further north in, in the northern parts of Africa, completely extinct. They've, they've been poached into extinction. It's a large meat-bearing animal. And if you're a hungry person and you've got one bullet and you've got one animal you're going to shoot, you're going to try and shoot the biggest one that you can that nobody's going to worry about. And so, yeah, giraffe really are in trouble. In the southern parts of Africa, Andy, um, they're very secure. There's a lot of them in private hands. Um, they well utilized as a species. And as a result, there's an open trade in giraffe in the, in the southern parts of Africa where, you know, there, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of them in countries like Namibia and, and South Africa where private ownership is allowed. As you go further north in Africa, um, you find that there's more and more trouble with giraffe right until the most, one, one of the most northern populations are the West African giraffe, which, um, you know, there, there's less than 600 of them. And those giraffe, you know, the, one, of, one of the issues with that is most of them are just confined into one little ecosystem. And so 600 animals, that's rarer than a black rhino or even a mountain gorilla. And so, you know, yes, the short answer is they absolutely are in trouble. Um, and, and it's just strange to me how they kind of a forgotten species, Andy. You know, every five minutes you hear of an elephant study or you hear of a rhino study or a pangolin study, but you don't really hear much about giraffe, you know? Mm. Is the giraffe different in different parts of Africa? Because you mentioned like some of them are extinct in some areas. Is that a specific type of giraffe or can you just move the ones where you've got a good population and just chuck them in the ones where they've gone extinct? No, great, great, great question, Andy. So there's four subspecies of giraffe. Um, there's four very distinct subspecies of giraffe. And so, yeah, certain, certain members of that family are very much more in trouble than others. But even locally, you know, the South African giraffe is a very common one. That's the one that occurs across South Africa. And, um, you know, the South African giraffe is really, that, that, is, that is an animal that's very, very common. Yet you do get several ecosystems where that particular one is, is in trouble. And so really, Andy, I think one of the goals of Giraffe Conservation Foundation and one of the reasons we as a foundation are very excited to support them and partner with them and, and kind of join hands with them is we, we start off with getting an agreement with government. And we've got agreements with Giraffe Conservation Foundation has agreements with, with many governments across Africa, allowing research to happen that allows you to quantify what habitat has, is possible for, for having giraffe in it, but doesn't have enough giraffe. What habitat is there enough giraffe for you to translocate them? Because it's not as simple as taking giraffes from South Africa 
and just plonking them in Niger or Nigeria or one of the countries where they're in trouble because it's a different species altogether. How important is it when you... So I'm thinking if you if you repopulate an area of six million with um with giraffes, the lions are going to be pretty happy. How important are giraffes also not just as a beautiful animal, but as a food source in an ecosystem like that? So the interesting thing with giraffes, Andy, is they they fulfil a very important role, particularly in the arid parts of Africa. They can be independent of water, which means that you know when you go in. You don't just plonk giraffe in an ecosystem. The first thing you've got to do is look and see, is there balance in that ecosystem? Is the poaching contained? Is the habitat, you know, what giraffes require? And then absolutely, they are very, very important. So a lion population, you would hope that your giraffe get to the place where they are a source of food for lion. They are a an important factor in that ecosystem. They, you know, one of the great things about giraffe is that, they don't really compete with any of the other browsing animals because they reach a level and they browse at a, at a height that most animals can't reach. There's nothing else that can reach as high as a, as a mature giraffe. And so they're very important players in an ecosystem um, it, with every aspect of what they do. And, and yet there's certain ecosystems where they don't occur and we think they probably have never occurred. And those are some of the great conservation questions that remain to be answered. You know, we're learning all the time. Mm. We'll get back to your conservation efforts later on, but I just want to sort of get into some of the more hairier moments that I've seen you involved in um, from watching Carter's War. Let's talk about your incident with the charging elephant. Just set the scene for me because a lot of people wouldn't have seen it. And what's going through your head when you've got an animal like that charging full noise front on at you? Just talk, set, set the scene. Tell me what you were thinking. You know, Andy, elephants are one of the most incredible animals, one of my favorite, actually. And um, one of the great things about elephant body language is they'll really tell you what they are thinking and, and so on. But at the same time, the way you, as the focus of their attention at that moment, the way you act will dictate what happens next. So if an elephant is coming towards you in a bluff charge and you turn and you run away, that could very easily become a real charge and you could get squashed. And let me give you an analogy that I think most people who are listening will understand. If you walked out of the pub and there was a guy trying to break into your car and you said, hey, what are you doing? If that guy turned and ran away, you would probably pursue him. If he stood up and said, well, what's it got to do with you and came boldly towards you, you would probably back up. That is exactly the same with an elephant. If you stand there and even take a step or two forward, very confidently squaring your shoulders forward, that elephant's going to probably stop. 99.9% .9 of the time, he's going to stop, but he's going to indicate that, that he's seen you and that he's heard you and that that's what's going to happen. And the only time that that's an exception, Andy, but you'll be able to tell that in the way that the charge starts is if he's had a prior incident, which you don't know that that's happened in the last 24 hours with a human, you don't know if he's been out of the protected area and been stabbed by a spear. You don't know if that particular elephant has got a, a poacher's bullet in him that's festering. He may have just had a fight with another bull and cracked a tusk. He might have an injury that you don't know about. So there's a lot of things that can make an elephant grumpy, but at the same time, they are going to indicate that long before it gets to the point of no return. 
So you'll be able to tell, you know, always when approaching an elephant, if you need to get past them, I like to, from quite a distance away, make sure that they get my wind. And so by giving them your wind, you're so able to you. watch. Yes. So, so they smell you. And an elephant's got an incredible nose. And if you let them smell you and you're 150 meters away, you've got plenty of time to avert disaster if, he, if he's going to be very aggressive because he will, you know, he'll be eating or doing whatever he's doing. He'll smell you. And if he doesn't like the fact that you're there, he's immediately going to throw his head up. He's going to put his head way up in a very, very aggressive stance. You're going to see a bow across his back. His tail's going to go up and you're going to see him looking for trouble. And that's the kind of elephant you go way, way, way round. If he's feeding or doing his thing and he smells you and all he does is, is casually lift up his trunk, have a sniff of you, his tail stops swinging for just a second, and then he carries on doing what he's doing, he's told you, I know you're here. I don't care that you're here. Just leave me alone and let me get along my business. And so in a scenario like this charge, what you didn't see in the beginning was he kind of casually looked around. He wasn't particularly fussed about us. He wanted to come past us as much as we wanted to go past him. And he thought the best way to get us out of his way was to come and assert a little bit of authority. So even though it looks like he comes very, very close, he's, he stops at 10 yards, which is for an <laughs> elephant, you know, not, not, not very close. It's, that's um, pretty close, Ivan. That's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> that's a charging elephant. That's 10 yards is pretty close. Yeah, well, it is close, but it's also, it's still far enough away for both parties, the human and the elephant, to change their mind and, and change their course of thinking. So at that point, by taking a step or two forward, there was no need to shout at him. And so I'll talk to them and, you know, make verbal contact, I call it. But it's a calm, it doesn't really matter what the words are that are coming out of your mouth because an elephant doesn't understand English. I think but what you said to I think what you said to this charging bull elephant was you just relax and stay right there. Which I mean <laughs> is quite patronizing when you think about it. <laughs> well, knowing that they don't understand English, <laughs> you could really say anything, and it's very much more about the the, the tone. It's a fairly firm but very gentle tone. And you kind of maintain that verbal contact. Hey, I know you're here. Don't worry about me. Just carry on your business. You're doing good, blah, blah, blah. Which is a lot different to, hey, stop. Mm. Which again, even with humans, if you don't understand a single word of somebody's language and they stand up and square off at you and shout at you, you're going to have a very different reaction than if they kind of quietly back off and say, hey, Andy, don't worry. I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to go around you here, blah, blah, blah. Have you ever run from an elephant? You know, Andy, I have. Um, I tell you the scenario is in, in thicker bush, it's a very different scenario because you very often don't know, don't know everybody that's there and you very often can't see them. And so from time to time, you'll be tracking or, or in the bush, whether you, whatever you might be doing, and you come across a herd of elephants is a very quiet thing. People think that it's a very loud thing. You know, the, the expression, it sounds like a herd of elephants. That, that's a complete misconception. They're very quiet. They've got thick padding on the bottom of their feet. They're very efficient and effective at walking through the bush. And so you'll sometimes, if you're not wide awake in thick bush, find yourself very close to a herd of elephant. 
And in that scenario, you don't have the opportunity to read them. And one of the dangerous things with elephant is if you find yourself close to them without them realizing you there, and then suddenly there's a human being 10 yards away from me. All the only option I have, if I'm thinking from an elephant's perspective, is to attack it because it's suddenly too close. I can't get away from it. It's right there. I've got to attack it. And so absolutely in that kind of scenario, you suddenly come across elephants. You go, oh, jeepers, there's elephants all over here. Let's quickly back out of here. And sometimes they'll smell you. And now they're looking for you. They can't see you. The bush is thick. There's maybe babies involved. And, and you know, you don't know what's going on because it's thick bush. Then the very best thing you can do is, is not necessarily run away, but get yourself out of their wind and, and carry, on, carry on your way. There, there's very little good that can come from giving a herd of elephants a surprise by jumping up in the middle of them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> are, are lions similar in the way that you use body language? Because I'm going to get you to set another scene for me. Uh, you were dealing with a situation with lions being poisoned by local farmers? You know, Andy, so let me let me lay a little bit more foundation. So people will say, you know, lions are getting, you know, hunted into extinction or, you know, lion populations are lower than they've ever been. And you hear all of this stuff. And I think most of the listeners will 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 have heard or read something on social media, something that that has educated them that truly lions are in trouble. And that's absolutely true. But they're not in trouble because of hunting. They're not in trouble for any reason other than this, this exploding human population across Africa, many of whom put great value in their cattle. And so by virtue of that, you've now got a large, pretty useless beast that has got a huge amount of meat on it and is very easy for a lion to catch. Now that represents the wealth wealth of a particular tribesman or, or, or headman or, or family leader and the lions start eating his wealth, he's going to want to see the lions gone, which means that they are one of the most difficult animals to have living in harmony with humans. Um, lions and elephant, actually. Elephant because they eat people's crops and lions because they eat people's cattle. So the, the human-lion conflict across Africa, we're not short of lion lions we short of lion habitat there's lots of lions but we're just short of habitat and so you know in a national park where they're safe and they looked after you know the natural progression is that they they give birth to some cubs the cubs grow up and then the young males are pushed out of the pride and they've got to go and find a pride or a territory of their own can i just go back on what you're just saying i just want to clarify what you just said so the the lions we're not short on lions we're short on habitat that sounds a little bit like we've got too many lions. Or have I read that wrong? No. So the reality is we don't have too many, Andy, but people will very often give you a statistic and say, well, there's 20,000 lions left in Africa and there used to be 2 million. That sounds very drastic and very dramatic. What people don't say is that probably as much as 80% of all viable lion habitat right. has lions in it. And so it's not that we've just lost the lions, we've lost the lion habitat. Right. And a lot of that, you know, cattle can live in harmony with wildebeest or elephant. They can't live in harmony with lion. So 
as the human element grows and these areas of, of Africa that are not parks or protected areas, but that just have some tribes, people and wildlife, most of those tribes, people have got cattle and goats. And most of those cattle and goats are popcorn for lions. So the one element that doesn't sit well with local people is lions. And no matter how you cut it, I don't think that there's an easy way to get around that conversation. And I don't think that there's an easy solution either. And so what we were trying to do in this episode, every episode of Carter's War was centered around highlighting a particular human wildlife conflict, then looking at it from the perspective of the wildlife, looking at from the perspective of the humans that were in conflict with that wildlife, and then looking at it from the perspective of solutions or conservation measures that could be taken to possibly mitigate whatever it was the episode was about. And so this particular episode, what we were trying to do with the incident that you were talking about is we found some lions on a cow that they had killed. And during the day, you just walk up to the kill and the lions back off. In fact, in a very cowardly way, they see you step out of the vehicle and they're gone. So in the case of lions in a tribal scenario, if your cow gets eaten, you find the carcass in the day or what's left of it, and the lions are likely going to just slink off into the thicket. In the dusk or in the falling light or even the nighttime, it's a very different animal, Andy. And what we were trying to do is to illustrate that. So I took the same carcass and I approached it just in that kind of dusk period between sunset and dark. And those lions were very brave and very aggressive. Now, here's what the sad thing is about that scenario. If you and I were villagers and a lion killed one of our cattle, we could take a very, very common poison that, that is easy to purchase, that, that is used to poison insects, and we could go to the carcass in the daytime. The lions would disappear. We could cut or, 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 or insert this, this poison into the carcass. And as soon as night came and they got brave again, they would come back to the carcass to finish it, and they would all die of poisoning. And that, unfortunately, is the demise of large populations of lion in many of the cattle areas. What you did see in that scenario is as the first lion charged, it made the second and the third one brave enough to do the same. But one of them had to start that thing. And only when that first one charged did the others follow suit. And they gave each other the courage to come all the way in. And so, again... As a human, you've got to be judging that carefully because now you've suddenly got each of them almost showing off to each other. And if you look at the video again, you'll see that they get a little bit embarrassed when they stop and they kind of, they don't want to turn around and walk away because the whole pride is watching them and yet they do, but begrudgingly. And so again, that's the point where as a human, you want to step back. And you want to slowly and calmly step back, but you want to be talking to them all the time and you want to be squaring off at them and not showing any sign of weakness whatsoever. And at that point, they, they're going to back off. But again, you know, you've got, a, you've got a tribal person that's never faced a lion, has never spent time around a lion and probably doesn't care about the psychology of a lion. He just wants them dead. So in the nighttime, they're going to avoid lions at all costs. And actually, to be honest, that accentuates the conflict because you run away from a lion at night, it's probably going to kill you. And then that's another statistic of 
a human killed with a lion. And unfortunately, Andy, one of the quotes that I say all the time is when humans and wildlife are in conflict, the wildlife always loses. So you stand your ground with most animals, the black rhino, you climb up a tree <laughs> and, and, and you almost <laughs> almost got your feet taken out. Talk me, talk me through that. What was going on there? So, so rhinos are very, very territorial. They, they are animals that, that they have a, a strong territory. And particularly, there's a great difference, Andy, between a white and a black rhino. The white rhino, it's a fairly sedentary animal. It's a grazer. It lives in the open plains. It's a huge animal. And he doesn't have a lot of, a lot of conflict with other rhinos. They, they move around in big groups. He's certainly got very little conflict with other wildlife. The black rhino, a lot smaller, very bad-tempered individual. He lives in thick bush. The white rhino and the black rhino are actually the same color. They've both got horns. And it's a derivation of the Dutch word white, which means wide. So wide-lipped rhino and hook-lipped rhino. And that became white rhino as in wide rhino. And then the black rhino, they just called it a black rhino just because it was the opposite of white. Um, But it's a derivation of the of the wide lips. So both got big, sharp horns. Um, unfortunately, that's their, that's their demise because that, that's the most valuable commodity known to man right now is rhino horn. Um, but but the, the black rhino, it's actually a bit of a misnomer. It's not black at all. Neither is the white rhino white. And so very often you'll, you'll hear them spoken about as, a, you know, as white and black rhino, but it's nothing to do with their color, which makes it a little confusing. The black rhino are the grumpy ones. And um, so, yeah, if you're in, a, in black rhino territory and you know there's one around, um, the best thing to do is to get up a tree. They're very, very short-sighted. And so, yeah, and, and they will charge at almost no provocation. Um, as soon as they realize who you are and, and what you are, they're going to they're gonna come in and try, and try and get at you. Funnily enough, they, they will also, once there's a, a brief confrontation, They'll usually snort and spin around and go huffing and puffing into the bush. They very seldom follow through or, or give you any further. So, you know, honestly, they're very short-sighted, Andy. And so sidestepping, you know, into a bush or behind a tree or whatever also sometimes works. But uh, being up a tree is definitely the best. The hippopotamus is supposed to be the biggest killer in Africa, most dangerous animal. You got into a flimsy little canoe paddled into a swamp infested with hippo. What are you doing? So Andy, I was proving that, that hippos are not the most dangerous animal. I don't know where that rumor started. It is absolutely a rumor. It's not true. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of writing that will tell you that hippo account for more human lives in Africa than any other wild animal. Well, that's just simply not true. Um, Absolutely. They do kill a few people, but so do lions and elephants. And actually the biggest killer is crocodiles. And there's certain, certain rivers in Africa where, where a person a day is lost. And so I think the, the, the misconception probably stems back from old, old times where there was a lot of hippo hunting with harpoons and dugout canoes. Because what I was trying to prove in that particular episode was that hippo are going to do everything they can to avoid you. And so by paddling a dugout canoe, a flimsy little dugout canoe into the middle of a herd of hippos, you saw for yourself, they just, they want to be away from you. By wading into the water around hippos, they want to be away from you. They, they're not this, this 
cold-hearted killer that's going to kill every human in their path. Now, another thing that I think has probably led to this misconception is that the major waterways through Africa are like arteries. And there's a lot of cropping on the edges of the, of the rivers. There's a lot of human habitation on the edges of the rivers. And so hippos come out of the water at night and they go out and they feed and their territories are like a pear shape with the narrow end of the pear where the water is. And so what will end up happening is the hippo will go out and he'll wander around in this vast area grazing all night and then come back to the same little spot in the river. Now, if you are a human being that's in their way, on their way back to the water, and they get a fright, they are very uncomfortable on land, and they will want to get to the water. So they'll run over you, they'll run through you, they'll try and bite you to get to their water. And so I think very often what happens is you'll get these hippo trails that lead very close to us, in some cases, even through the crops and the villages of the people that are living alongside the river, and on that daily commute, it simply puts people in conflict with the animals by virtue of the fact that they're trying to be in the same place at the same time. And so, you know, I knew from years of being around hippos, um, I was a canoe guide for many years where every single day we were navigating around hippos. I can assure you that if they wanted to kill you, a canoe safari on the Zambezi River would not be safe. And it is absolutely a safe undertaking. You know, it might be a person every, you know, and I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of people being on the river every year. And there might be one incident every five or 10 years. And there's always a good explanation for it. So if a hippo charges at you, have you got any, any hope or is there any body language tricks you've got? Can you, if you, if you haven't got a hat to wave at them or just stay out of their way in general? Yeah, just stay out of their way in general. Try and try and be in a scenario, uh, Andy, where, where they not in conflict with you where you're not confronting them, you know, in an environment that you know that they're going to be uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, I think that it's a, it's an easy animal to manage, and the management plan is very simple: stay out of their way. <laughs> <laughs> Probably similar to crocodiles. So crocodiles are a very, very different animal to anything else in Africa. Um, crocodiles and polar bears have one thing in common. They are the only animal without prior learning that look at human beings as a food source. Every single other animal, whether it's a lion, whether it's a tiger, whether it's a leopard, they all need to learn how to eat people because inherently they're scared of people. Whereas a crocodile, its, its DNA will tell you that you know, every mammal, every living thing is a food source. And so there's parts of the Zambezi River where you know, people are eaten every single week and multiple. And that's because, again, you've got this scenario where the human beings are putting our wildlife under the, the vast volume of humans on the planet today are putting our wildlife under more pressure than they've ever been before. So you're a crocodile that's 80 or 90 years old, and you used to live on fish and a few, a few wild animals as they came down to drink. Now you're living in a river that's heavily fished. So the fish stocks are probably lower in volume than ever before in history. And it's very likely that the banks of the river are fairly heavily populated with humans and their crops. And so there's no wildlife. So you've either got cattle or goats or dogs or people. And they, they, they eat, eat those with the same amount of, of appeal as each other. Each other. It's not like 
you know, humans are off the menu by any means. And so, you know, when you've also got people living along a river, you know, they, they'll take necessary precautions. And then when there's no attacks for months at a time, you know, a large crocodile, if he gets a good meal, he can do without food for eight or nine months, even a year. And so an animal like that, he eats a person and then he just hangs out. And so it's very easy to forget a year ago when somebody was eaten and human nature, everybody very carefully starts to build, you know, barriers so they can get to the water without the crocodile getting them and nothing happens for the first week, then the second week, then the first month, then the second month, nothing's happened in that stretch of river for eight months. It's very easy for people to get very relaxed and very nonchalant. They're going to the river every day and they're bathing and fetching water and washing clothes and cleaning fish. Then all of a sudden, Mr. Crocodile is hungry again eight months later and eats another person. And the same cycle starts. Everybody's scared for a while. The weeks go turn into months and everybody gets relaxed and same cycle. So, you know, crocodile really are a sinister animal. They're sinister by virtue of the fact they hide very well in the water that you never know where they are. And certainly it's the one animal that I'm, I'm very, very wary of when I'm next to any large water course. And, and, you know, you hear horrifying stories of croc attacks and, you know, croc attacks where they're very, very under, underestimated, you know? I mean, it, it, it happens all the time. You arrived on the scene and, and there had just been a crocodile attack. Can you talk me through what happened there? So a young girl was actually, washing clothes on the edge of a river this is on the zambezi river isn't it on the zambezi river yes and it was just in the headwaters of a massive lake called kaborabasa lake um which is which is a man-made dam and she was washing clothes and the crocodile grabbed her and you know it, it it was a large crocodile and you know she was never seen again and andy you know, village people live a very, very close family life. It's not like anybody, you know, is away from the village for very long and, and so on. And so, you know, it, the the trauma to the rest of the village was was really palpable. And it's a it's a really sombering thing to arrive there and you arrive and everybody expects that you're gonna somehow fix this and bring her back. There was chaos when you arrived at that village, wasn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. And People are thrashing the water, trying to scare the crocodile. People are, are, have got spears trying to poke it into the reeds where they, you know, somebody thinks they might have seen it. Um, you know, you've got, you got 50 people all in boats and screaming and wailing. And the, the parents of this young girl and the, the relatives are all, you know, performing. And, you know, it, it really is chaos, Andy. And it's a really empty feeling. When you arrive and you arrive on a motorbike on a motorboat with a firearm, and they think, I guess it's a similar to, you know, a doctor arriving at a car wreck. Everybody thinks, well, the doctors here, they're going to fix this all, and you can't. There's nothing to fix. You can't find the crocodile. You know, 100% is probably laying in the reeds, less than 100 yards away. You know, the person is dead and drowned long ago, and it really brings home. You know, I think that that little little piece of video, we tried to edit it in a way, Andy, that made people realize what a real and what a desperate situation it is. And through the whole episode, you realize it's desperate for everybody. It's desperate for the crocodiles. They don't really have a choice. It's obviously very desperate for the tribes people who are 
losing members of their community. And from a conservation perspective, there's no easy solution. You know, these people are living alongside the river. The river is the very source of every mouthful of, of food that they, they, they have. And yet it's also home to an animal that looks, sees people as food. And so, yeah, the, the crocodile conversation is a, is a very difficult one, Andy, because, you know, crocodiles don't just stay in national parks and protected areas. They, they find their way into many, many of the large water, water courses across Africa. Um, they, they're almost impossible to eliminate from those systems. And neither should we. But at the same time, it becomes almost impossible to come up with a conservation action plan that speaks to the fishermen and the person reliant on their water source, as well as it speaks to the crocodile and the conservation of one of the oldest you know, living members of the animal kingdom on the planet today. And so, you know, crocodiles have survived for, for longer than most other organisms on the planet. And I think this could be the one thing that, that pushes them over the edge is just this, this exploding human population, Andy, which is a, a sad and horrific thing to say, but there is no easy solution. They, they can't live in harmony. You can't put people living in harmony with something that eats people. Mm. It, it's just not going to happen. And so, unfortunately, I think that these, these heavily populated areas are destined to see themselves devoid of crocodiles in the future, you know? With that tribe, uh, they, they wanted retribution. So you, you went and hunted, set up camp, hunted a crocodile. Um, and then and what is one of the most harrowing scenes I've ever seen on television? Uh, you had to take a crocodile back to the village. Can you just sort of talk me through like the, the, the process and, and why you had to hunt the crocodile and then what happened and, and what the result was? So it was something I tried to avoid. I mean, we were on site for quite a while, Andy. And, you know, one of the things about Carter's War is we film stuff that's very real, things that have been part of my world and my life. Um, it's not something where I'm just cruising into a place I've never been before or, or whatever. And one of the things that, that I've seen happen before after a, a, a croc attack is I've seen them call in the military and literally, they will go with a boat and lots of ammo and shoot or shoot at every crocodile they see. And what I was trying to avoid was having that happen. And I knew that, you know, there's no way to know which crocodile ate this person. But there was the possibility that I was kind of backing on, which actually turned out that way, that, you know, you're never going to get a lot of huge crocodiles in an area. There's always just going to be a few. So by the way, but by virtue of the, the habits of a crocodile, when there's a large kill, it, they have a kind of a feeding frenzy where all the large crocs and even the small crocs will come in. So there's a very good chance that if they kill a zebra, everybody's got a piece of zebra in it. Um, and so I knew that by setting up a bait and taking out one of the larger crocs, we were going to find human remains, but we needed to do that quickly. And I was hoping that that would avoid them calling in the military and, and seeing, you know, two or 300 crocs, you know, either wounded and die on their own or, or killed. And so, you know, it, it was a solution, a very hollow short-term solution nonetheless. So what we did is we, we, we actually got a, got a chunk of meat. We set up a trap in a place where, which was very, very close to where this girl was taken. 
Um, we made sure that the wind was drifting the scent of this, this, this bait, if you will, downwind to where I knew the crocodiles were. You would never find them without a bait. They, they just incredibly good at hiding and, and being in the reeds and, and so on. And then we set up a blind and, and literally it, it took many hours, but slowly one, you know, as soon as the first large crocodile arrived, and started eating the bait the others came in honestly like like motorboats and before you know it you had a had a feeding frenzy with you know 10 or 15 large crocodiles um and it's pretty grisly we couldn't say so on tv but that's exactly what it would have been like when the 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 crocodile that killed that girl when he started feeding that's what it would have been like they would have all arrived and you know basically fought over the over the carcass they don't care whether it's human or fish or wildlife, it doesn't matter. Um, it, it's just food to them. And and again, Andy, that I think all of these things are what made that one of the most difficult episodes to film is just because of the realities and the harsh, grim realities of also just having to kill something just to make the people happy kind of goes against the grain, you know? You had to take the crocodile back to the village as well, didn't you? Well, I needed to for a couple of reasons. Number one, I wanted them to feel like that crocodile was dealt with. So they didn't go the military route. But also that was a pretty harsh deal where the, the family came. And, and one of the harshest moments of that was an old man arrived there who had lost both legs many, many, many years before. And he, he was still a fisherman. He, he, he continued to fish. He continued to do so with, with a wheelchair and no legs. Um, but he arrived and he, he crawled up on all fours and, um, and, and just seeing his reaction to that crocodile and seeing how he saw this kind of closure. It was interesting. It was very much more dramatic for us looking at this whole scene than it was for the people who live that whole scene every day. To them, it was, they were very happy that we'd killed this croc, but it wasn't as dramatic as we thought it would be there wasn't huge amounts of cheering and ululation or whatever it was yeah it was kind of taken in their stride which kind of makes you realize what they deal with on a day-to-day basis in areas where there's lots of conflict you know was it human remains that you pulled out of the crocodile so we did we 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 didn't show the human remains but we certainly pulled out some clothing um, and then after that, there, there were there were some pretty pretty grisly remains. Um, and obviously, one can't show all of that stuff on the television. But yeah, it, it started off with with a shirt and and some other stuff that they recognised straight away. Um, but yeah, Andy, you know, again, when you're right there on the front line, it that stuff becomes so much more infinitely real. And I think that television and special effects and 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 all of that have numbed us to realities. I mean, we've all seen war movies with slow motion, blood flying and whatever. I can assure you it's a whole different deal when it's real and it's right in front of you. Um, And and it's quite difficult from a television perspective to make people realize the length and breadth of what's actually going on in a scene like that. It's very difficult Mm -hmm. to capture it, you know. But something that, you know, that, that was one of the hardest episodes, Andy. And I tell you why is because in every single other episode, there was a great solution at the end 
of each episode that we discovered, that we explored, very often that we explored on TV a solution that I knew already was working. With Crocodiles, there's no solution, which makes it a very, very somber ending to an episode. It was very much more of an episode of this is what's happening, and it's going to carry on happening until the crocodiles are all gone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You know, one of the things that I always highlight to people is that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a vegetarian, a vegan, a hunter, a meat eater, a fisherman, or, or it doesn't matter. We've all got impact. We're all part of the 8 billion miles on this planet that have to be fed. And, you know, right where you're sitting right now, if you go far enough back in time, that was a wild natural environment with wild natural wildlife living on it. And one of the things people don't want to face is the fact that humans are exploding and the human population, our impact on this planet is, is absolutely massive. And you can name any species on the planet today there are going to be huge tracks of former home range that are gone right now that are now just lived in by humans. And it's only when you highlight a particular species that people start to identify with that species. But unfortunately for the crocodile, it's an ugly animal that people don't love easily. And so in spite of the fact that it's one of the most efficient animals on the, on the, on the planet, the reason I say that is it hasn't had to change which is why it's unchanged. And this perfectly designed organism is about to go extinct in a bunch of Africa simply because of the human-wildlife conflict. And that's a, that's a tough ending to an episode that you want to have a, a hopeful conservation message to, you know? No, you did a very good job. What is the point of keeping crocodiles like why wouldn't you let the army just go in and hose them down why do why do you need them they just seem like a feel like death so andy just what exactly what you've said is why i feel so badly for the crocs because they are a difficult animal to love and yet they fill this incredibly important ecological niche um they're a very important part of an ecosystem and i don't think that any animal that's naturally occurring in an area deserves to be made extinct because they're either ugly or they they're in conflict or whatever they're all important players now because of the croc survivability they are the last to go in an area like that all of the mammals have been eaten um a lot of the fish are getting eaten and the crocs are just better at surviving so they're the last ones left and so they're kind of representative of the last the last mainstay of wildlife in that area when the crocs go there's nothing left and that's a that's quite a somber thought, 
to think, okay, well, when the crocs go, there's nothing left. You know, think of, think of other ecosystems. As human beings, I think we all want to be conservationists. We all want to see natural balance and natural order, but not when it includes conflict with humans. And so how badly do we want it? Well, not really very much at all. And so think of England and how much of England is hedgerows and fields. All of those fields are so people can eat. And yet all of that at some point was badger and fox and roe and red stag habitat. And today it's just a place where we feed ourselves from. And somehow, you know, you'll, you'll get a lot of people in the countryside in England promoting the conservation of the hedgerows uh, because so much wildlife lives in hedgerows. And yet really when you think of it, it's pitiful that a hedgerow is all that's left. That's all that they can live in because the rest of it is plowed and sprayed and, you know, cultivated so that you and I can have our oatmeal for breakfast, you know? So we're talking about saving crocodiles. It's not a massive priority um, for most humans on the planet. But as far as other animals go, there's been huge stress put on them by poachers, isn't there? And and that's yes. a, that, that seems like the bigger priority. No, I think it really is, Andy. Modern day conservation, you don't think of the science that it takes to inform conservation decisions. Remember that in, in, in Africa, many, many, many people that are living alongside wildlife are living on the breadline. So let me ask you this, Andy. If you lived on the edge of Yellowstone National Park and you were having a pretty rough winter, you'd lost your job for whatever reason, and your family was on the brink of starvation, do you think society as a whole would think it's okay for you to hop over the fence and kill an elk to get yourself through winter? So just to be clear, I can't, I can't order Deliveroo? No. Okay. I'm, go I'm going to go get an elk. I'm going to go and find an elk. So society would probably say as long as your family was about to die and you were going to eat the whole thing and you were doing it just to survive, that probably would be okay. However, what if there's a thousand families at the same time all wanting to go and get an elk to get them through winter? So there's this weird thing in the world where wildlife doesn't belong to anybody. So people, that the same conversation would happen would it then be okay for you to walk into a butcher's shop and just unhook half a cow from the freezer and walk out the door with it? No, 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 no. That belongs to the butcher. But what about the elk? The scenario is exactly the same. There's two kinds of poachers. There's commercial poachers, which are poaching wildlife products for further sale. Now, it might be dry meat that they take to a city and sell. It might be rhino horn that they sell in China or ivory. It might be tiger bones that get sold in China. Those are commercial poachers. A subsistence poacher is Andy Rowe or Ivan Carter that's trying to feed their family. They're having a rough time. They're living very close to a wildlife reserve of some sort, and they are just poaching enough meat to eat without a permit and illegal, but it's just to survive. You and I will do anything to support our family. It's a whole different set of rules when you're trying to, when you're trying to feed your family which means that unless we provide the community with a viable alternative, there's not enough money in the world to stop all of the subsistence poaching. And so when you look at the volume of subsistence poaching, to give you an idea, the, the Congo Basin last year, WWF published a paper 
last year, actually, that said that a million tons of bushmeat comes out of the Congo Basin every year. So that's 500 miles of 18-wheeler trucks, nose to tail, all full of meat in one year, every For year. poachers. Poachers. Wow. Now, the other side of that, Andy, is every mouthful of that is actually physically eaten by human beings. So if you remove that amount of protein from the food economy, what are we going to feed those people instead? And how are they going to get it? So it becomes a very much more complicated problem than just we have to stop poaching by having more game rangers. There's not enough game rangers in the world to stop it at that, at that level. So in Qatar 11, which is an area that, that we support very heavily in Mozambique, we, we sustainably and ethically harvest from our, our wildlife reserves there enough meat to feed the community that's living in the area. And they get enough free meat in return for zero poaching that they won't allow anybody else to come and poach because the, the community that lives in that wildlife area is benefiting so heavily from their healthy wildlife that they won't allow anybody in there to come and poach because they know that if there's poaching in an area where they're living, we're going to stop distributing free meat. And so we have created a viable alternative. Now, that's very viable, and it's a very viable solution in an area where you've got a small number of people. What about an area like Kruger National Park, where there's tens of thousands of people living around the park? There's not enough wildlife in the park to feed them all. So I don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. But it's very complex and important conversation to be having to make sure that the communities living alongside wildlife areas do have an element of benefit. Because if not, they're just going to look at the wildlife as food for today and they're going to kill and eat it. What are your thoughts on big game hunting? Should rich people be allowed to go into Africa and kill themselves a beautiful big lion or a, or, or a, um, or a bull elephant? Like what, where do you stand on that and what impact does that have on the local conservation efforts? So Andy, let me start by saying, obviously it's a, it's a really hot topic. And unfortunately what ends up happening is the emotional, the emotional side of something being killed by somebody very often overrides the sensible conversation that needs to happen. And so by virtue of a fact of, of a guy coming to Africa and paying a large amount of money to hunt an elephant or a lion or any other charismatic species for that matter, um, doesn't make that guy a conservationist, doesn't even make the conservation wheel turn. And that guy may be a very less than desirable character. However, if it's done well, and if the money is utilized to promote conservation, that very same individual is the source of some very big money that can be used to keep the conservation wheel turning. If it's well used, the profits and money that come from professional hunting, I call it professional hunting because I'm talking about sustainable ethical hunting, the money that that can generate absolutely can lead to conservation. I think things that have to happen in order to make it viable is very good scientific quota setting. In other words, setting a quota of animals that's small enough and dictating that it's got to be old males beyond breeding 
that have very little impact on the remaining population, that in itself is the most important criteria. And then making sure that the money generated goes back into the preservation of the ecosystem within which this pursuit is happening. Let's think, let's, let's back out to 60,000 foot. Every piece of land in Africa or anywhere in the world has to in some way, shape or form pay for itself. Otherwise it's gonna be modified to a point where it can. We were talking about the fields in England, they're paying for it by being cropped. There's only five different land uses, only five. You can either settle something which modifies it entirely. You're sitting right now in London in an area that's settled and so it's very modified. You can mine it. We can draw our minerals out of that area, it gets heavily modified. We can log it, we can draw our timber out of it, it gets heavily modified. The, then, then we've got agriculture, we can grow our food on it, which heavily modifies it, or we can have tourism. And tourism takes two forms. You can either have consumptive tourism, i.e. hunting, or non-consumptive tourism, i.e. non-hunting. And both of those, if poorly managed, will modify the habitat. So you take an area where you've got a large set of lodges, lots of vehicles, and it's not sustainably managed, we can love it to death without shooting a single animal just by virtue of a road network and all of the, you know, all of the, the water that has to be pumped to the surface for your luxury lodge and the footprint of the lodge and the water use and the, the impact on the overall system, which if you look at it from a biology perspective, over time, you see a degradation in your biodiversity. So certain species will disappear altogether. Other species will proliferate to such a degree that they... They, they push species out and your biodiversity, the range of biodiversity will be, will be minimalized. Same thing with hunting. If you overhunt an area, very, very quickly, that area gets destroyed and somebody walks away with a big fat wallet and someone else walks away with a bunch of trophies and the ecosystem is destroyed. And so really it comes to one very succinct, very easy to understand sentence. We need to sustainably manage our, our, our wildlife and we need to responsibly utilize it as a resource. I'm quite happy that you don't like hunting. I'm not talking about you individually, anybody. I'm quite happy that a person doesn't like hunting. But before they annihilate the hunting model, they need to give us a viable alternative and a way that that area or that patch of land or that concession or that private land area can earn its keep without hunting. Instead of just saying, oh, don't worry, they must figure something out. Not they, the people who are destroying the model need to think about the viable alternative. Because as we stand right now, about 15 million acres of, of Tanzania that were very viable wildlife acres have now gone away. Could you not just put a... Uh, safari on there get tourists in there so not at all Andy because the kind of places that are hunted are places where the terrain or the tetsi fly or something makes it less desirable because photographic safaris and game viewing safaris are all held in areas where there's lots of wildlife and it's very scenic and very beautiful and it's very visible nobody wants to go to an area where they've got to search for 10 days before they find a lion. Not because there's so few lions, but maybe the terrain is not conducive to seeing them. 
Maybe it's very hilly. Maybe there's not a big road network, whatever it is. So it's what I call the badlands of Africa are the areas that are professionally hunted. So take Northern Cameroon, for example. I doubt that a single person listening to this knows anybody that has ever thought of going to Northern Cameroon on a photographic safari. Yet that is home to the Lord Derby Eland, which is a very sought after trophy animal. And the entire wildlife economy of Northern Cameroon is based around people coming and spending $45,000 to hunt an Eland bull. But by virtue of the fact that they want a big old bull, he's an old bull, he's usually beyond breeding, and he is supporting the entire wildlife economy or, or the, that population of wildlife. Now, at the end of the day, there is no viable alternative. So if you take away the hunting tourism from, my, from, from northern Cameroon, what are we going to replace it with, Andy? What's going to generate the millions of dollars that are today spent by hunters? There is no viable alternative. And so then you say, well, the people will figure it out. They sure will figure it out. They're going to turn it into crops. They're going to possibly mine it. They're going to possibly log it. And the ecosystem is going to be lost anyway. What are your thoughts on diets and things? I know we're going off on a tangent here, but what, what are your thoughts on diets and things that exclude eating wildlife and exclude eating meat? So for example, vegetarians and vegans, do they have a positive impact on the environment that you see on a day-to-day -day basis? So Andy, I, I like to call these uncomfortable truths. And so uh, uh, did you have a cup of coffee today? Yes, I did. Your coffee was grown where there used to be a rainforest. Everybody's coffee was grown where there used to be a rainforest. Now, we love to hate palm oil, and there's a lot of action groups against palm oil. And the palm oil, the reason we're supposed to hate it is because it's grown where there used to be rainforest. Coffee is the same, but we all love coffee, so it's a little bit uncomfortable to... I've got a cup of coffee right here, by the way. <laughs> it's a little bit uncomfortable to hate something that we all love. And so we all accept the impact of millions of acres of rainforest chopped down so we can have a nice cup of coffee. And we're gonna tell ourselves that it's ethically sourced and whatever. Whether you're a vegan or a meat eater, if you wake up in the morning and you have a cup of coffee, you are responsible for some of the rainforest disappearing. Congrats, that's great. Oh. Then let's talk a little bit about, you know, so, you'll hear people promoting wind energy because it's so clean. Well, it takes 160 tons of steel to build the windmill so you can have your clean energy. And it takes over 100 tons of coal to make a ton of steel. So just because you don't see the coal mine or the steel mine doesn't mean that your windmill is generating clean energy. It just depends how far back you want to go. And so really, when you start looking at it, it's very hard for a windmill in its lifetime to generate the same amount of energy as it took to build it. If you're talking about from iron ore and a coal mine on upwards, it's going to take more energy to build a windmill than that windmill can ever, can ever generate. And so really, those are uncomfortable truths. And so people will say, well, you know, I'm a vegetarian because I don't want to harm wildlife. Have you ever seen what a soybean field looks like? How much naturally occurring wildlife exists in a soybean field? It's sprayed so you can't have any natural beetles and bugs and anything else. It's sprayed so you can't have any natural weeds or anything like that. So, oh, no, 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 but we have organic. Okay, so what you mean is that we're going to have a bigger patch of land to generate the same tonnage. So we destroy more habitat 
to generate the same type. No, well, that's not really what I mean. So what do you mean? And so really, these are the uncomfortable conversations, Andy, where I think diet is always a, a really hot topic. The people who eat wildlife will tell you that, so take white-tailed deer in America. Um, there's, there's millions of tons, not, not thousands of tons, millions of tons of wild meat and fish are, are, are eaten in America every year that, are, that if that was, was meat from cattle or sheep, or even if that protein was replaced with cropping, would take thousands and thousands of acres when in fact it's sustainably taken out of the ecosystem. The same thing applies in Africa. You know, in, in one of our conservation areas in Mozambique, um, we distribute about 66, 66 tons of meat every year, 33 metric tons of meat every year. Um, and that goes to the local community and that is all harvested from the wildlife reserve. And it's done in a way that it eliminates the local meat poaching because they're getting enough free meat to not have to poach for meat. And you can't take people that are poaching and just tell them, stop eating because animals are precious. You've got to give them a viable alternative. So Andy, getting back to your original question, which has the most impact? We all have impact and we all have equal impact because the person that may not choose to eat meat for whatever reason, and I respect all of the reasons, still wants to turn a light switch and have power in their house. So by virtue of the fact that they're on the grid, they, they are pro-coal, they are pro-oil, they are pro-energy. No matter what they tell you, but I guess and then like, say, well, but I guess like, there's a you're not making a choice between eating meat and turning on the light switch, though, are you? No, but it's which one has more impact, right? So, so another just quickly another another quick point that I always like to make is, do you know what the largest man-made thing on Earth is? It's got to be some sort of uh, city, maybe like Sao Paulo or something like that in Brazil. It's a big city, big man-made city. It's the Pacific garbage patch that's twice the size of Texas floating around north of Hawaii. So it's a patch of plastic floating in the ocean twice the size of Texas that's floating in the ocean. And yet most people don't even know that that exists. So if you want to have impact, yes, managing your diet is very good. But I think that really limiting our use of single-use plastics is equally important. But one thing that I'll tell you, Andy, is that human beings, by our very nature, we are lazy. And so until there's plastic coming out of the faucet when you try and get water to your house, nobody's really going to care. Because even the promoter of single-use plastic, you know, banning single-use plastic, when they get to the supermarket and say one day they forgot their cloth bags at home, they're going to use plastic. And they'll still buy cookies that are wrapped in plastic. And they'll still buy candies that are wrapped in plastic. And only when it's convenient will people actually do that environmentally conscious thing. As soon as it gets inconvenient or difficult, then 90% of everybody carries on their life. And, and as long as we, as I say, I think that as a society, COVID has taught us the impact on the planet. We've seen so many of these great stories when you know, cities ground to a halt. And for the first time, you know, people were able to see the mountains and dolphins came back to the canals in Milan. And, you know, uh, all of these, all of these different things that we saw happening, 
as a result of human beings slowing down our consumption? I think those are indicators. There's no easy answer, Andy, but those are indicators that we have too much impact and we are fast approaching the sixth extinction. Um, and, and if we don't modify the way we utilize our, our land and our ecosystems and, and so on, I think we are going to see the sixth extinction, not in our lifetimes, but certainly in our kids. In England itself, you drive in the countryside and you say, look at this beautiful green field. Well, do you think that the biodiversity and the, the natural wildlife thinks it's a beautiful green field? So if the deer come and they eat your crop, they get shot. If the rabbits come and they eat your crop, they get shot. If insects infest your crop, they get sprayed and not a single wild or natural piece of vegetation is allowed to grow in your soybean field. And so I use these words because they're shocking and they should be that vegetarian food is grown in a wildlife holocaust. Because in order for it to be grown, every living natural organism needs to first be removed. And how can we say that's low impact? We just need to accept and own the fact that if you live on this planet as a human being, you're one of 8 billion mouths that are eating on this planet, you know? And so I think that responsible use of our resources, whatever that might look at, look like. I love the fact that there's vegetarians and that there's vegans because it shows awareness. I don't love the fact that they think that they're holier than the guy who eats meat, who may be equally aware and may be doing things in other areas that are very good for the environment and good for the planet. The reality is the building that you're sitting in the fact that we're able to talk over the internet, the fact that I want to reach up and switch on a light means that I am pro the use of natural resources because everything that exists that's man-made today was at one point a natural resource. Are there any examples of specific animals that have had their habitats destroyed that you can think of along these lines? Well, there's lots, Andy, obviously, you know, in absolutely everything, but you know, the charismatic ones that you hear about a lot are orangutans. You know, orangutans, forests are being destroyed. Everybody says palm oil, palm oil, palm oil. Equal amount of forest being destroyed for coffee. And what exists in a bean field? Beans. That's all that exists in a bean field is beans. And yet that used to support trees that were hundreds of feet tall with everything that lived in them and everything that lived on the forest floor and in the forest used to be there. What do you think the island of 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 Great Britain used to look like before all the fields. I mean, giant, giant oak forests and, you know, huge open moorland and whatever. And think of the biodiversity that used to exist there where today it's wheat fields. And what natural stuff grows in a wheat field, Andy? Nothing. Just finally, what advice would you give someone to make a positive impact on the environment? What's something... You know, we've talked about it being convenient. What's the most convenient thing we can do as, a, as, a, as anyone, as an individual, to make a positive impact on the environment? So, Andy, I think it's, it's not one particular action, but it is awareness. Just being aware that wildlife needs some help, being aware of what our impact is. The next time they offer you a sandwich, say no to the bag. The net, you know, make your choices well of, of what you buy in the supermarket. Just awareness, Andy. And I think that one of the biggest things for me personally is seeing these massive policy changes. So whether it's 
banning hunting by someone in the first world that that doesn't like it or whatever understand what you're voting for before you sign your next facebook petition understand the agenda because it can ma be made to sound in three or four lines like you are si signing something very worthwhile when actually people sign those things very quickly enough signatures creates an influence on a vote an influence on a vote can influence policy change policy change can be positive but very often it's disastrous for the people on the front line in africa or anywhere on the front line in the in the third world wherever that might be because very often they've not been consulted someone has said well it's terrible that people hunt lions cuz lions are endangered well they're not endangered from hunting they're endangered because of habitat loss but that little detail gets left out you post a few you know very badly you know bad images of you know wealthy fat people sitting next to a magnificent lion they just killed and there's a lot of that that is bad and i get that i completely do but before one signs a petition that can lead to policy change understanding what it is that you're signing um doesn't matter you know i think that's a responsibility we should all have and then just as you go about your day to day life if you can flush the toilet one time less have a shower that's a few minutes less use one less plastic packet a day if 8 billion of us are doing that we're going to have massive impact on the planet and andy and earlier in the conversation we spoke about it there's endless examples during covid-19 where the wildlife rejoiced that the humans were less active that to me is a sign that we are having too much impact and collectively it's not just you and i doing one little thing collectively we all need to be doing one little thing so that you know we can we can start modifying our behavior for the better of conservation and natural ecosystems you know Ivan Carter thank you so much for joining me and uh, keep fighting that good fight out in the front lines in Africa Well I appreciate it Andy and um yeah really really have appreciated the honor of being on your show and um hopefully it's going to stimulate a few heated discussions because those are always healthy Thanks for listening and if you like this episode of the Andy Rowe show I'd love it if you could leave a review and share it with your mates. Make sure you check us out on Facebook, YouTube and Instagram and if you want to learn more about Ivan Carter's conservation efforts and find out how you can help directly head to ivancarterwca.com.